Lesson tonight comes from Genesis chapter 3. We'll look at just, just verses 1 through 9, which will be here on the screen. Is also in your service folder, and they go as follows. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree, from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? This is God's word. What we're doing, if you weren't here last week, what we're doing in our worship series now, this week and for the next eight or nine weeks or so, is we're revisiting famous uh, kind of classic texts from Genesis. And we said, as I mentioned at the top of the service, that there is kind of a superficial understanding of such things. Uh, there's a lot of maybe general familiarity about these stories. You maybe recall them to some extent from Sunday school. But if you haven't studied them as an, as an adult, you know, you've, you've changed a lot in the last 30, 40 years or so. And your understanding of the world and your understanding of yourself and your understanding of God has changed a lot. It's important to revisit these texts again and again and continue mining them because they are, in fact, infinitely deep. And I don't know that there is a deeper text in a world history than Genesis chapter 3. Um, there is not a section of writing that is more densely packed than what actually takes place in the verses of Genesis 3. Uh, in fact, I've often said that if I could only preach on one chapter of the Bible for the rest of my life and the rest of my career, I would choose Genesis 3 because I would never run out of information. There is so much that's actually in here. And so the things that we can't even begin to get to tonight are stuff like what about the, the specific consequences attached to the sins? Uh, what about the, the, how, uh, the genderedness uh, difference? How men and women experience the fallenness of the world in different kinds of ways? That's absolutely fascinating. What about uh, the, the proto-evangel, the first promise of a savior in scripture? If you haven't seen this before, Genesis 3.15 uh, when God promises Jesus is coming, the, the offspring of the woman that crushes the serpent's head. It's absolutely mind-blowing. It's the most incredible prophecy in world history. We can't even get to all that. What we are going to get to tonight in these first nine verses is what Adam and Eve are thinking and feeling and doing that caused them to lose oneness with God, with one another, with themselves. Uh, you know, what would bring about such the loss of identity, the, on, uh, the, the, the onslaught of shame? Because what the Bible is saying, the Bible very easily could have just said, you know, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and then they're outside of the garden and you move on from there. It doesn't do that. It tells you the, all the mechanics of what takes place in the fall. 
why does God go out of his way to tell you the mechanics of what take place in the fall if not for the reason that the exact same dynamics that take place at that tree are the exact same dynamics that take place in your hearts and my hearts and in our lives on a day-to-day basis when we're tempted. Okay? By the way, the same solution for Adam and Eve is the same solution for us here today too, which we're going to figure out as well. But I'm going to break it into, I, no, I know, normally do three points. I'm going to do five points. Don't let that throw you. It sounds like, because some of you calculate it and you're saying, okay, maybe an hour 15, hour 20, that can't be right. Uh, so no, I'll make them each a little bit briefer, but we're going to look at Satan's mockery of Eve in verse 1. The misinformation, Eve responds, but she's not completely accurate, and that's verses 2 and 3. Then Satan just completely lies to her straight up in verses 4 and 5. And then uh, we're going to look in verses 6 and 7 at why God even bothers creating a tree and offering this occasion for temptation in the first place. That's a great question. And finally, we're going to look at God's rescue. So even though we won't get to the proto-evangel in Genesis 3.15, there's very clearly gospel in this text, and I'll show it to you, okay? So the mock, the misinformation, the lie, the why, and the rescue. Those are our five points. First of all, the mock. Um, the, the first lie, if I ask people to look at this text and say, what is the first lie that Satan brings to Eve? My guess is a lot of people's eyes would drift down to verse 4 and they would see the spot where uh, Satan says to her, God didn't say, you, you will not surely die if you eat from the tree. No. And yeah, maybe that is the full first outright lie. But the cunning deception absolutely begins in verse 1 where Satan says, did God really say? Um, are you sure this is what God really said? No, that is not what God said. You shall not eat from any tree that is in the garden. He said, in fact, the exact opposite. You can eat from any tree in the garden that you want, save one tree, except just one tree that I'm going to put in the middle of the garden. In other words, Satan's not asking Eve a legitimate question here. He's insinuating something. He's implying something. There's, a, there's like an intended mockery going on here. Now, how do I know that? Uh, In the Hebrew language, so one of the interesting things is if you read through a bunch of different English renderings of a translation and they're all different, you know something kind of nuanced and weird is happening in the original language. So if you read through the NIV and the King James Version and the ESV and the NASB and the NLT, and they all translate it a little bit differently. And virtually all of them, you know, it says, did God really say, indeed, did God say, did God actually say, and stuff like that. What that tells you is there's a nuance in the original language there. And the nuance is this Hebrew word key, which is basically just a a marker that indicates emphasis. And what it's essentially suggesting there is uh, Satan is not legitimately asking a question. He's making an emphasis that is insinuating the opposite. Now, just so this makes sense, in English, we typically refer to that as like sarcasm. When you say something, but you say it with enough like added coy emphasis that you actually are intending the exact opposite. So in other words, the way you could render it here is, did God really say that? Are you serious, Eve? Seriously, your garden, the garden that he put you in charge of, that you're supposed to take care of, did God honestly, seriously tell you you could not eat from the very trees that are in your own garden? Satan is not asking a question here. He's trying to cast doubt uh, he's disparaging Eve. So what Satan does is creates, he creates an environment of um, condescension, an environment of self-pity, an environment of doubt. It's not an argument against God. It's an attempt to make Eve feel kind of silly for believing what she believes. Now, 
interestingly, this is the exact same approach that Satan basically uses today. He doesn't just come to somebody and say, no, it's written there in the Bible, but God, that's not true. What he does is it's a, there's a little bit of a mock in there. And one common cultural example I'd give of this is, you know where the most common place for people to lose their faith in American culture is? Some of you know this because you're uh, located in this place in life right now. It's in college. Without question, statistically speaking, uh, the George Bar Barna group, Barna Research Group, David Kinnaman just wrote a book based on their research uh, that said 70% 70 of young adults today, 70% of young adults who are born and raised in Christian families will leave the church by the time at some point in their 20s. 70%. Why? Well, they get to away from home, they get off to college, and there's a lot of peers there who have a diversity of beliefs, and there's a lot of professors there too who seem very smart about a lot of different things. And some of them, you know what they're saying? Do you really believe that? Do you, do you seriously believe? So there's this, you're telling me, you believe this, there's this guy named Noah, and he creates a boat that's like bigger than a football field, and all the little creatures from around the world come marching up to him and they get on that boat and then he, this flood comes and it washes away all humanity and they're floating on top. You believe that? And do you, do you really believe that there's this guy named Moses that, uh, you know, he went up to the Pharaoh of Egypt and God sends down these plagues and there's boils and there's locusts and there's some kind of like angel of death that comes and kills the firstborn son in every family. How could that even be a loving God anyways? And then he marches his, his nation of people, uh, like the water is split and he marches a nation across dry ground and then the waters come together and wash away the Egyptians. And seriously? And there's this guy, this carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth in first century AD and he, he, he's just a carpenter, but he, he dies on a cross from Roman execution and he, he rises three days from, uh, later from the grave. And if you put your trust and hope in him, maybe all the hellfire uh, will eventually go away and you can go off to this uh, fantasy land, you know, forever after, happily ever after. Really? Seriously? Do you believe this stuff? Huh. You seemed pretty smart. See, what is that? That's not an actual question. When they say, seriously, do you believe that? That's not a question. That's a disparagement. And that's what Satan is doing here. Satan does not have a question. He does not, he's not making an argument. He's trying to make Eve feel very small. And it's crafty and it's very uh, sophisticated sounding intellectual bullying. I, I've gotten this before myself. I got this last week. I preached on uh, the creation account. I had two different people that came up to me afterwards and essentially said, James, seriously, do you, are, do you seriously buy this kind of stuff? And at that point, you know, to some extent, what I want to say is yes. And my, my first instinct is to say, yes, I do. And would you prefer that I believe that all uh, sophisticated, complex uh, human consciousness came from inanimate plasma? or that life was seeded here on Earth by alien invaders from galaxies far, far away a long time ago, is what I believe markedly less tenable? In other words, do you actually have a question or do you just want to make me feel silly for what I believe? See, it's an atmosphere of mocking that's going on here first. It's not a legitimate question. So Eve responds to the mockery. Uh, not perfectly well, though. See, she corrects Satan, but it's not completely accurate because she says, yeah, God didn't say that. God said, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but there's this one tree that you shouldn't eat from, and you must not touch it, or you will surely die. Now, 
I want to be fair here. Commentators are a little bit divided on how exactly, how harsh to be with Eve here. Maybe she's just accurately paraphrasing what God has said, or maybe she's inaccurately. I, I tend to lean towards the latter, and the reason for that uh, is it's not just an added detail to what God actually said. It's an added detail that makes God seem more oppressive and more restrictive than what he actually is. So, yeah, you, not, you can't eat from it. You can't even touch it. You know, like, wow, that's kind of intense. Why is God so paranoid about this tree? What's so special about this tree, Eve, that God won't let you gain access to it? What is he trying to withhold from you? See, accuracy with God's word is very, very important. And one of the things I've noticed from teaching Bible studies to a lot of people over the years is people, generally speaking, people who are approximately my age and older are often interested in asking questions about like comparative religious beliefs. So why one religion, religion believes this and how is that different from Christianity, et cetera, et cetera. And, and may, maybe even more than that, how does one Christian theological tradition uh, vary from the next? You know, different denominations within Christianity. A lot of questions about the differences. People, one thing I've noticed is people who are approximately my age or younger, they, they know there's differences, but they're not so much concerned about what the differences are. They want to know, does it really matter? So like, yeah, the religion, one religion to the next is, is different, uh, okay? Or for that matter, one theological Christian tradition is different from the next. But in the grand scheme of things, does it, does it actually matter all that much? And that is a perfectly valid question because it's true that not all teachings are created equal. I mean, the reformers knew this 500 years ago, justification by grace through faith. That is the doctrine. That's the doctrine by which the Christian church stands and falls. So there is such a thing as priority in your teaching. And yet, on the other hand, theology sometimes is sort of a game of inches. Eve is mostly right in what she says. Uh, but she's off by a bit, and that bit becomes a little bit deadly and it, it, it's going to kind of unknowingly unravel her in the process uh, because she's falling into Satan's idea that this, this doubt about God's goodness and this belief that he might be oppressing her in some way, shape, or form. If people today, let's say, let's just go back to the example of college students. If you're a college student today and you're a Christian and you don't know why you believe what you believe, how to defend your faith, or what God actually really says, you are very easy prey for the deceiver. And by the way, I also want to say I'm not picking on Eve here. I've mentioned Eve a lot directly. Adam's worse. How do I know Adam's worse? Why? Because it says when she ate from the tree, she gave to her husband who was with her, verse 6, and he ate it. Now remember, who did God originally speak this command to in the first place? It's Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Do not eat from the tree or you will surely die. Eve is not created so far as we can tell at this point. And therefore, what that tells us is Adam was very clearly supposed to communicate this well to his wife. So, either she's misremembering what he said or Adam miscommunicated what God told him to say. Either way, regardless, it's Adam's fault because he's with her the entire time. And if she stated it incorrectly, Adam absolutely should have jumped in and, and intervened on behalf of his wife here. But he doesn't. So he's primarily responsible. And you know how I know he's primarily responsible? Because a couple of verses later, God is going to come to them and who is he going to address first as primarily responsible? Adam. So Adam is just as much, if not more, at fault here and, uh, you know, what's happening this is, this is the reason why we put such a high premium 
uh, by the way, on studying God's word. Um, I had a meeting with some consultants from Generous Church the other night. Generous Church is the consultants that we're working with for the next year uh, to help sort of infuse our culture uh, as, and deepen our culture as a culture of generosity here around St. Marcus. And we, they responded and made an assessment of those surveys that I asked you guys to take a little while ago. And 176, thank you for filling those out, by the way. 176 of you filled out one of those uh, surveys. And the thing that was determined, what they mentioned, uh, was that despite the fact that the congregation and the respondents tended to skew fairly young, uh, we had a, this is their, their term, not mine, a higher than normal uh, biblical knowledge uh, amongst the churches that they compare, their, amongst the churches that they survey. Higher than normal biblical knowledge. Don't get cocky. Because knowledge doesn't necessarily equate to faith. So the, the Pharisees knew their Bibles pretty well. And everybody knows that they weren't particularly faithful to Jesus. So knowledge doesn't guarantee faithfulness. However, the converse is pretty much true. Lack of knowledge or ignorance almost guarantees faithlessness. So we have to, as Christians, put a high premium on knowing what it is that the Bible actually teaches. And this is why, for instance, things like in our midst, Christian education is such a big deal. Uh, why we double down on that, not only for the discipleship of some of our own kids, but also for the witnessing to some of the kids in our community. Uh, this is why I'm constantly trying to shepherd you guys and guide you guys into uh, growth groups and into small group studies. Why? Because when you're sitting there with your Bibles opening, talking to one another, facing one another, the Spirit is working and uh, it is life-giving. And when you become armed with Scripture, you become that much more difficult for the, the enemy to deceive. Okay? So... Eve gives a response, but there's a little bit of information there, and uh, Satan sees an inch and he jumps right in, and this is where he gives just a flat-out complete lie. And you know what the, the lie is? It's, it's really fascinating. He doesn't go after the existence of God. He doesn't say, no, Eve, I, I don't think you're, you know, you're inaccurate. God doesn't even exist. No, that's too, it's too obvious. It's too clear that God does exist. God does too good a job of revealing himself to the world. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Uh, even, he doesn't go after the law. He doesn't go after the existence of God. He doesn't go after the moral law. He doesn't say, Eve, God didn't say don't eat from that tree. It was very clear. God did say don't eat from that tree. So these are the things that we refer to as the natural knowledge of God. The, the obviousness in the design of creation that points to a creator, his existence. The obviousness in the moral code that exists on every human heart, a sense of right and wrong and a conscience. The moral law. He doesn't go after those two things. Because God does, the vast majority of people in world history have always believed and always believed there is such a thing as right and wrong. What does he go after? Very important. He goes after God's goodness for Eve and Adam. He goes after God's grace and whether or not he really loves them and whether or not he actually has good will. It's essentially like Satan is going to Eve and saying, you know, Eve, you know, I, I feel kind of sorry for you actually because there is so much good out there and you have so much potential and I can't believe that you're going to stick with this God who is trying to hold you back and hold you down and keep you from becoming your true self. See, Look at the temptations that you face today and think, think about what is underneath all of it. So, like, if you know the Bible says, if you know the Bible says, 
uh, do not have sex with somebody who is not your spouse. Why is it that still deep down underneath you're thinking, well, but maybe it would be good? Why is it that if the Bible says, you know what, don't hoard your money and keep it all to yourself and selfishly, you know, just purchase for yourself, but actually spend it freely on others, use it to uh, delight your friends, use it to proclaim and spread the gospel and do stuff like that. And that deep down inside, I think to myself, no, but it would feel so good just to, just to keep it to myself. Why is it that very clearly God says, forgive, don't hold grudges, don't hold on to the wrongs that others have committed, freely forgive one another, and yet deep down inside you think it, but it feels so exhilarating to get vengeance. It would feel so good to stand over that person and say, I told you so. Why is it that we still want to do the things that we know very clearly God has said, no, you don't want to do that? Because deep down in the bowels of your heart, we don't completely trust them. We're not completely buying some of the things that he's saying. And we're thinking to ourselves, because Satan is plucking these strings, maybe God is trying to withhold from me some privileges and some rights that I am actually entitled to. And I'm telling you, that distrust is what is underneath every negative human emotion, every negative human behavior, uh, your pride, your sadness, your anger and bitterness, all of it, underneath all of it is distrust about God's goodness to you. See, if... Just think this through. If I actually believed God's promises, I would be humble, not proud. If I really believed God's promises, I would be joyful, not sad. If I really believed all of God's promises, I would be so incredibly confident, not always fearful and anxious and broken. The real issue is we just don't completely trust his goodness towards us and Satan wants to play that constantly. So if you're keeping score, here's what has happened thus far. Satan has created an atmosphere of kind of doubt in God's goodness. He has caused Eve to think she's silly for believing what she believes. He has uh, preyed on somebody who doesn't really know what God says quite as well as they should probably know. And then he has just straight up lied to her. And that's his MO. Satan is a murderer and his only weapon that he can really use is lies. So Why? If this is going to lead to the unraveling of the human race, why would God allow it to happen in the first place? This is one of the more common questions I'll get from somebody who is an adult who is once again revisiting Genesis 3 and studying it. Why, if God loves us and God knows humans and he knows how they operate and he knows what happens and he knows probably what will happen, why does he create something that would be tempting in the first place? Why would he, for that matter, he allows the temptation to exist. He allows it to be attractive. I mean, when Eve looks at the tree, we often, like folklore, makes devil, the devil look like what? You know, he's got horns and he's terrifying and he's got a pitchfork and he's like clearly this threatening, imposing creature. That is not how Satan, I mean, we don't like snakes now, but in that day, there's no fear here. The tree is good. The fruit is good. Why didn't he make it unattractive? Why didn't he put things that people universally hate? I think, you know, like if God would have put like a mobile station public restroom right next to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, I would never be tempted. I would never, I've never dreamed of going there for any reason. If he, got, if he made the tree of knowledge of good and evil with really bad Wi-Fi, I would not think to hang out there. Uh, you know, if he put, instead of a serpent, if he just put like a mooching uncle that was always trying to borrow 50 bucks off of you in that tree, nobody would ever think to go there. Why does he make it look so good? Here's why. Here's the catch. Look, God is looking for us to trust him. If he gives you all the reasons why not to do it, and he does say, look, if you eat from this, you will surely die. 
Genesis 2, 16 and 17. So he tells you what will happen, but if he tells you why, then you don't have to express any trust in him and you don't have to have any faith in him. And if you don't have any trust in him, then you don't actually have a relationship. And God did not create human beings to be his minions and do his bidding. He could have created robots that did all this stuff. And for that matter, he's self-sufficient. He doesn't need people to do stuff. He can just speak the universe into existence. But a triune relational God desires greater relationships. So he creates people who have free will. The one catch implicit in all of that is the idea that if you're going to love somebody, if it's going to be genuine love, you have to have the option not to love. If somebody is going to trust, they have to have the option not to trust. If somebody is going to experience true relationship, they have to have the option that it not be coerced. They have to have the option to not exist in that relationship. And so if God had given them all the details, the significant details of what would happen if they ate from the tree, and God said to them, you know what, you're going to experience spiritual alienation from God, you're going to experience personal shame and self-loathing, you're going to blame and resent one another, you're going to experience frustration in all of your work, you're going to experience physical pain and suffering. I think Adam and Eve would have been more highly motivated not to eat from the tree, but why? Not because of personal trust, but because of self-interest. Because it's going to be inconvenient for me if I do it. And therefore, what is driving them at that point is selfishness, not trust, not reciprocated love. And for that matter, why a tree? I've, I've been thinking about this for years, honestly. Why a tree with fruit? Why isn't the first command just don't kill somebody? Wouldn't that have been a legitimate command? Don't hurt people. Don't steal from people, that could be the command. Don't kill people, that could be the command. If I create other people, don't sleep with the ones who aren't your spouses, that could be a command. That would all be legitimate. Why, why isn't the command don't kill one another? Because then the essence of sin would be bad behavior. Instead, what God does is he creates a beautiful tree and perfectly looking healthy fruit. And then the essence of sin is what? Don't put the good things that I've given you in your life ahead of me. The essence of sin is not simply don't do bad things. The essence of sin is don't look at the good created things as though they were God to give you meaning and purpose and security and hope. Don't look at the good things of life as though they were God to be your savior. Whether it's your career or your romantic relationships or your family relationships or how beautifully your children turn out or what schools you get into or your career or your wealth or whatever else. The essence of sin is not letting the beautiful things turn into God in your life. So, it brings us to the rescue. What is the gospel of the lesson? The gospel of the lesson very clearly is God doesn't destroy sinful people. I mentioned this last week. God had every right to, but he doesn't ruin the people who ruin his perfect creation. God just, he doesn't just call out sinners. He calls out the sinners. You get that? God calls sinners. He, he walks towards them, not runs away from them. He goes and he finds them in the garden. Even when we're hiding from ourselves, even when we're recoiling, even when we can't stand to look at ourselves in the mirror, human beings, by what they do, are constantly hiding and God is constantly seeking. He relentlessly pursues us no matter where we go or no matter where we try to hide, always pursuing people that he could very easily and probably should even be offended by, but he doesn't. He calls out to them. Uh, and that means the gospel in the greater context of scripture is what? 
God undoes the sin of a tree by facing a tree in our place for our sins. Because centuries later, the Bible's gospel record of this is the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus as who? The second Adam who has come into the world. And you know where he goes? He goes to another garden. It's not the Garden of Eden, it's the Garden of Gethsemane. And he faces another command about a tree, the cross. And yet he does it anyways. In other words, the essence of sin according to the Bible, or the sin of the tree, you might put it, is that we think we know better than God. It's us claiming that we have autonomy over our own lives. And my life is my hopes and my dreams and my plans for my future so that I can do what I want with my time and my money and my body. The sin of the tree is putting ourselves in the place of God. And you know what the salvation of the tree is? God coming down and putting himself in place of us taking what we deserve at the cross for our sins. Adam and Eve were cast out of paradise for their sins. Jesus got cast out of paradise too. At the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's getting cast out from the relationship with God. That's getting cast out from paradise. He's not getting cast out for his sins. He's getting cast out for our sins. Why? So that we can re-enter into the blessing of the presence of God for all eternity and live, yes, happily ever after. Look at God's gentleness here. Um, some, of you, some of you are uh, professional counselors and you know what counseling looks like and what it's supposed to operate like and many of us have been in counseling before and any of you who have perhaps ever done any counseling, you know if somebody comes to you and their kind of life is kind of messed up and sometimes they don't own some of the, the things that are going on in their lives and sometimes there's some denial and delusion and all of that, what do you do as a counselor? I'll tell you what you don't do or somebody's never going to come back. You don't just lecture the individual. You don't just slap a diagnosis on their dysfunction and send them on their way. Uh, you don't just uh, descend in judgment upon them. You know what you do 98% of the time? You ask them questions. You call out to them. And you let them explain what's going on in their lives. Look at what God is doing here. He gently comes after them. He asks them questions. And he's calling out to them and giving them a chance. Now, God knows exactly where Adam and Eve are. He knows exactly what Adam and Eve's problem is. But yet he asks them a bunch of questions. You know why? Because he's a wonderful, wonderful counselor. He's gently waking them up from their delusion and their denial. He seeks in love not to judge them but to redeem them. And so some of you, if you sense that there is God um, calling out to you in your life at all right now, and I promise you he is. The question is whether or not you sense it. And to some extent, it might very well be through your fellow Christians. For some of you, I guarantee it happens in your growth groups. If he calls out to you right now, share your hurt and share your struggle and share your shame because Jesus paid for it all on a tree and Jesus is counseling you to be completely honest about it moving forward, to let it all go and now to come and worship him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you graciously went to the tree of death so that we could eat forever at the tree of life with you. Help our hearts be moved by that every time we face temptation. To the glory of your name. Amen.